0: Hello, it is Thursday the 7th of May. I'm Tom Tilly. This is The Briefing, where you get up to speed every morning on the news that you need to know. And later in the show, we'll go deep on the mental health impact of the pandemic. Lifeline has had its highest number of calls ever during the coronavirus crisis. So we'll find out what to do if it's getting too much for you or someone you love. Um, someone we love on this show is Jan Fran. Hello, Jan. Hello. <laughs>
1: Happy Thursday. We're going to talk
0: about the app in a sec. Are you on Team Australia yet?
1: Oh, here we go. I feel like you've already just harangued Annika over this and now you're It's harangued. not working. It's workplace harassment, frankly. <laughs> well, I, haven't, I haven't downloaded it yet. Um, I'm still thinking and I'm still reading and I'm still deciding, but I think ultimately I will.
0: You're just waiting for what? <laughs> no,
1: that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> All
0: right, let's get into the big stories of the day.
1: Tom, Mother's Day is fast approaching. And look, there is speculation building uh, that the PM, Scott Morrison may consider relaxing the laws around gathering, letting 10 people gather for the occasion. That's what the major papers are reporting.
2: Until there's a vaccine, then there isn't the possibility of us getting fully back to normal. Uh, But we want to get back to it as close as we possibly can. You know, that will take a couple of months to get back to that position. But look, I'm hopeful there'll be more restrictions eased as of this Friday and and then the states will be able to announce when that will happen.
0: Yeah, I don't think anyone's ever looked forward to a Scott Morrison announcement as much as they are for this Friday. There is so much expectation about which freedoms the National Cabinet will decide to give us.
1: Yeah, and look, I think it comes at a pretty pertinent time. People probably want to see their mums and hang out and, you know, see the fam. But look, they need to have a look, I think, at how social distancing measures will work. Um, Obviously, it's super important for things like small shops and restaurants, how far apart people should stand, and also what the rights and responsibilities of staff and bosses are.
0: Yeah, and I think it will be different in each state. In Victoria this week, of course, they had that outbreak from the meat processing plant, yeah. um, and Dan Andrews has taken a stricter line on coronavirus, and that only gives him more reason to. So it'll be interesting to see how the different states play it.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think um, you know Victoria has gone pretty hard, uh, and uh, and they have a particular cluster that other states don't necessarily have. So
0: yeah, and there's also the news from Sydney's New March House, where 16 residents have died now. And the Aged Care commission's threatening to revoke their licence later today unless it agrees to stop admitting new residents and lets a government appoint a manager take over. I'm surprised to hear they're accepting new residents given what's happened there.
1: Yeah. I mean, how would you be if you had a member of your family in that Oof. home at the moment? I mean, it would be an incredibly sort of stressful time, right? And you sort yeah. of... I don't know who would be voluntarily sending their family there either.
0: And another sobering thought, um, there's new modelling out showing that the number of suicides in the wake of the pandemic could kill more people than the actual pandemic.
1: Yeah, this is research from Sydney UD's Brain and Mind Centre, and it predicts that the impact of the virus could result in an extra 1,500 deaths a year over the next five years uh, due to suicide, and that young people are very likely to be the hardest hit.
0: The suggestion is that that's because of the economic impacts that they'll be facing and that when a recession hits it hits young people hardest and that's something we're going to explore in detail with Professor Ian Hickey from the Brain and Mind Centre later in the show. And speaking of the um, app Jan Fran, which you're still mulling over. Um, some businesses, I don't know if it'll be the one that we're working for, but uh, they want the power to force staff to download the COVID Safe app before they come back to work.
1: Yeah, so a couple of people have come out um, speaking about this, but I think the latest person is the boss of the New South Wales Business Chamber, who's told the Oz that she reckons this one is an absolute no-brainer.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I don't know you, if I
1: agree that it's yeah. an absolute no-brainer.
0: <laughs> I mean, you thought I was I was bullying you just by asking you. Imagine if you know, your workplace forced you. Now that's that's workplace harassment that's workplace from the top har- down.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure that uh, use of the app should be mandated either by the state or by workplaces. I think that there should be just as much education and information out there for the people to kind of decide and make up their own mind. I say this as someone sitting on the fence. So let me mull that over. Yeah. I,
0: look, I kind of uh, agree with you. I think people should have the choice. Um, But lots of people are going for it. It's been downloaded over 5 million times in 10 days, despite the concerns um, around privacy and also issues for iPhones. Um, That's been a a lurking one that it may not be working properly on iPhones yet. And they're waiting for an update for it to actually work properly. That sounds pretty dodgy. Um, But anyway, 5 million people. The original goal was 40%. They're not, you know, saying that as explicitly now, but only an extra $1.3 million, anita needed to hit that. So that's pretty good.
1: Yeah, I think the vast majority of Australians have gotten on board with this. It doesn't instil the highest amount of confidence that there are some glitches in the app. I think that this is the time where we definitely don't want an app glitch or an iPhone glitch at all.
0: And yesterday we had a really interesting chat with Michael Chug about the shape of the music industry in the time of the coronavirus and how gigs will look going forward. And yesterday, Falls Festival said that they're moving forward with optimism and um, pushing ahead this summer despite the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Yeah, obviously, the border ban is a problem. You're going to have an issue getting international acts if they can't actually fly in and out of the country. Um, it's announced an all Aussie homegrown edition, though, to help get around that with shows set down for Lawn, Byron Bay, Marion Bay, and Fremantle. This is in December and January.
0: Yeah, it'll be amazing if that festival can go ahead. Um, it's still quite some time away, so you know, lots more positive news could come. And um, it will be interesting to see you know, how they sell that all Aussie lineup. They basically don't have a choice, but as Michael Chug said yesterday, there's going to be a refocus on Australian music, and, and that could be a really good thing.
2: You know, I don't think the live music scene is going to come back like it was very quickly. When it all does start to come back, I think you'll find that Australian music is probably going to mean more than it's ever meant in the history of Australian music.
0: Yeah, we also asked him about Splendour, which was rescheduled from July to October. Here's what he said
2: about that. You know, it's a punt. They're taking a punt. You know, I don't want to be negative towards Splendour or any of the festivals. You know, we'd like to have a couple going on as well, but I think October is very ambitious. They've got lots of
0: internationals on their lineup, so yeah. it's ambitious for that reason, but also the social distancing um, measures, which are only just starting to wind back.
1: I have wondered what this will do to Australian music, you know, the, the idea that necessity is the mother of all innovation when you have to kind of create these new spaces um, because you have to, you can't bring mm-hmm. in international acts. I, I wonder what that will do to the Australian music scene. It could be really positive in yeah. a
0: way. Yeah, well, I was writing about Chug's comments that we, instead of seeing, you know, Um, stadium shows. They might play 10 nights at 500 capacity rooms. And someone wrote to me online saying, oh, imagine if, you know, instead of just doing that all in one venue, they they moved it around the suburbs of Sydney, you know. Yeah, totally. um, Regional areas, you know, might get acts turning up a lot more than they used to before COVID-19. So it, it will be interesting to see how they innovate and the different ways they can take music to the people. Yeah, totally. All right. Thanks for that jam. We'll catch you on tomorrow's podcast.
1: Pleasure. See you soon.
0: You're listening to The Briefing, and right now we're going to go deep on the mental health impact of the pandemic. For so many of us, our normal lives have been ripped out from underneath us. And Annika Smethurst, that's led to a lot of people reaching out for help. Yeah,
3: Tom, in the first few weeks after the lockdown started, Lifeline received almost 90,000 calls. Now, to put that in perspective, that's the highest number of calls in its 57-year history, and they're not alone. Beyond Blue has seen a 40% increase in contacts being made to it over this time last year. And what we're seeing with respect to those calls is an increase in the distress levels, an increase in the anxiety levels, in the complexity of what people are feeling.
0: That's Christine Morgan, who's the CEO of the National Mental Health Commission. So clearly our mental health services are getting way more calls than they're used to. So let's find out what you should do if it's all getting too much for you or someone that you really care about. Professor Ian Hickey is such a a passionate voice of support in this space. He's the co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Uh, Ian Hickey, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Good morning. It's a pleasure to do it. Um, We're facing so many pressures in this pandemic, financial stress, potentially losing our jobs, social isolation, worrying about family, our routines have been smashed.
2: What impact is this having on our, our minds and our moods? It's a major social dislocation. There's a great deal of health anxiety at the moment. But from a mental health point of view, what we're really worried about is what's yet to come. So national surveys already, we see increased anxiety, distress, concern, but people are really worried about potential recession, the effect on jobs, educational participation, and what might happen then. From a mental health point of view, it's really those factors most affecting the young, casual workers, those who are marginalised, those who already are facing real difficulties. Because we know from much previous experience that basically economic downturns, recessions, have the potential to harm and potentially kill the vulnerable. You know, we're all concerned about what's happened, but our focus is on what may be yet to come.
3: Look, we're all feeling a little bit stressed. As you said, it's this massive upheaval to our lives. But for people listening, when does stress become something more serious? When does it go from, I'm a little bit sad and this isn't how I expected to live my May, but actually, no, this is a deeper problem?
2: It's a really good question, Annika, because actually it's normal to be more anxious and more concerned at the moment. In fact, if you're not anxious and concerned at the moment, I don't know when you ever are because <laughs> none of us, probably in our lifetimes, except for those who really go back a whole other generation to the end of the Second World War, have ever been lived through a period of such national and social interruption. Our whole lives, our family life, our social life, our work life, our school life, has been totally turned upside down to retreat into our houses and isolate In fact, normally in the face of threat, we huddle together, get together and face common threats together. These kind of situations actually break up or potentially break up that social cohesion and that normal response. So everyone is more anxious. The difficulty is as this goes on and it's prolonged and on some people has much more impact. Some people will shift from being more anxious to actually potentially requiring assistance in one way or another, needing to take particular steps because they're not sleeping, they're overstressed, they're starting to use alcohol and drugs more, they're starting to really worry about what their future is. And it's that uncertainty, and as it goes on over longer periods, that will shift a proportion of people, a proportion of the population, from just being excessively worried into actually more dangerous territory. So how does that actually
0: play out, Ian? You start feeling more stressed, more anxious, and that might happen kind of gradually, Um, what happens in our minds as that gets worse and and what do we then see in our behaviours?
2: We don't necessarily know. None of us know how vulnerable we actually are until we find ourselves in that situation. We always think it's going to happen to somebody else. Look, I'll cope. I'm resilient. You don't really know until you lose your job, until it's actually your industry, until it's actually your education that's on the line and you shift from just being concerned about it, to actually ruminating about it, not being able to sleep, not being able to see the future. So shift from positive, productive action, I'm gonna cope, I'm gonna do productive things and make the most of this time, to actually withdrawing from people, actually not sleeping, can't see the future, starting to feel helpless and engaging more, potentially more damaging actions, more use of drugs and alcohol. And then of course, in certain sort of people and certain situations, starting to feel that life is actually hopeless and there is no future. And actually people don't know their own vulnerability. So one of the things that's bad is to think, oh look, it'll happen to other people, it can never happen to me. You know, it's in these challenging times or these eternal stresses that some people will find out for the first time, in fact, that they are more at risk. So it's important for all of us to actually take actions to potentially reduce that possibility. And that means actually connecting with others, trying to work out about the future, engaging in productive actions, trying to maintain a regular sleep-wake cycle, which is really hard when you can't get out and exercise and be productive in a particular way, try and plan and do productive things, in each daily cycle. You touched on the generational
3: impact there, saying that a lot of people that are going through this have never really experienced anything stressful like this before. What do we know about that sort of long-term impact of people that grow up during, whether it be a war or in this case, a pandemic? How
2: long does it take to go through? Well, it's really interesting, Annika, about wars and a lot of war analogies use you know the war on the virus as if we can sort of line up and sort of you know send tanks or aircraft against it or something which we can't <laughs> actually during wars although they're the most terrible thing societies pull together and things like suicide rates in fact go down not up so for those who act in collectively and a common interest and this is very important in the Australian situation at the moment whether we can act commonly together without being told what to do we can actually decide what to do and collectively take an action to support each other actually economic downturns do the opposite. And we've seen this, the greatest example being the Great Depression, where suicide rates dramatically went up. But subsequently, in the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s, in the global financial crisis in 2009, actually the effects are prolonged. They go on for years. They particularly affect the young. So those who are casual workers, didn't develop skills, didn't complete education, had a prolonged period of unemployment. So you see the effects often for five or 10 years after a period of two or three years of actually economic downturn, but on particular groups. And I think the issue of concern at the moment, if you look at the surveys that have come out in Australia, but also internationally, it's actually the young who are doing a good deal of the worrying at the moment. They're the ones without the assets. They're the ones who've lost casual work. They're the ones whose education has been interrupted and their future is much, much more uncertain. So there's a particularly needs to be at this moment, a focus on the mental health and welfare of young people. And I'd say this particularly relates to things like the JobKeeper and JobSeeker programs, the support or not of the federal government for education. No use saying, well, go and get a job when there aren't jobs in hospitality, retail, tourism, casual work, the usual things that employ young people. Actually, I'd really strongly say there's a need for federal government support for movements into higher education, vocational education training, that young people develop skills during this period, that they use the time to increase the chance and in industries in which there are likely to be jobs.
0: Ian, really interesting to hear you give advice about doing practical things like using this time to increase the amount of training you have. I I think when a lot of people face a mood disorder or a mental health problem, or they're just feeling really low, they've got to make a decision about whether they reach out for help with their mental health. But they often think, well, most important is actually just Getting my future sorted. So, how do you sort of decide, you know, in a time like this, whether you you reach out for help and and I guess you know potentially sit down with a counselor or a psychologist versus that sort of in, impending need to kind of sort your stuff out in a more practical sense.
2: Well, Thomas, a great question because actually reaching out, and in these days where mental health awareness is much higher in our community, if you are struggling, if you find yourself ruminating, you find yourself worrying a great deal, actually talking about it with other people and including professional people is very helpful, but you know, historically in mental health, we have a saying, you don't get well to go to work, you go to work to get well. You know, we need the routine of work. We need the kind of practice of work. I'd say the two go together, in fact. Mm. When you are struggling, you may need to reach out and get professional help and assistance. And a lot of that hopefully will be practical. It will focus. We're all in a bit of a hole at the moment, but some of us are gonna be in a bigger hole and need to take practical steps because we've disconnected from work, school, social groups that we were normally part of. So I think they go hand in glove actually. When you're really struggling, professional help may be entirely appropriate. And we're seeing that at the moment in reaching out to helplines and support lines and others. People want to talk about it, but also beyond the talk, doing things every day is also really important. Trying to have a routine and a sense of purpose. So, you know, for all of us, purposeful activity leads to motivation. It's a kind of funny thing. We think you've got to have motivation first, then we will go do something useful. Actually, the doing something actually often increases people's motivation.
3: Obviously, those figures show us that a lot of people are reaching out to try and get help. But I know I was at the GP this week and they said they've actually seen a drop in number of people getting help. Is there a concern that people aren't perhaps going down those traditional paths they would to go to their GP and say, actually, I'm not coping with this because we're all locked inside
2: our houses? That is such a good question, Annika. So the paradox at the moment that we're facing is in a time where we can clearly record increased psychological distress and it's totally understandable, actual use of healthcare is going down. So people got, they also got the message, they're terrified to go to a doctor or a hospital in case they catch <laughs> the virus. That's the one place you don't want to be if you're already in trouble. So we actually need to emphasise with people exactly the point that you made. And GPs are really important. Anyone who knows you well, and you know well, you're much more likely to cry on their shoulder and reach out. For younger people, of course, they don't tend to have that degree of contact with healthcare, that familiarity. So also supporting young people to use healthcare effectively for the first time. If that's a GP, if it's a psychologist, it's a youth service like Headspace, or it's the range of online services. So the government's already supported telehealth initiatives, which are really digital. These all times to reach out, try online, but really for people who know the health system, parents, teachers, supporters, aunts, uncles, encourage people to use what is there. We all need to say to people, look, I'm worried. This is really unusual and that we are actually going to try and cope with the situation best we can together. You know, humans are social animals. Australian society basically, I think, usually acts in the social good when faced with these kind of challenges.
0: Ian, great to hear your passionate but also calming reassuring voice on this topic thanks so much for joining us on the briefing thank you that was professor ian hickey he's the co-director of the brain and mind center at the university of sydney and annika it really jumped out that the big challenge here is the long-term impact on young people of the recession that's come from the coronavirus
3: Yeah, not so much the lockdown. It's going to be the economic hit that's actually going to hurt this generation more, which was really interesting and also fascinating that in times of war, we sort of band together as opposed to in recessions.
0: Yeah, so I guess lots of practical measures we can debate around what we should do to deal with that recession and ease the strain on young people going forward over the next few weeks, months and years. A fascinating and really important conversation.
3: Yeah, and just remember if you are struggling through the coronavirus, you can always contact Lifeline on 13 11 14.
0: Tomorrow on The Briefing, online harassment. Can you publicly out your harasser if they're a child? A very contentious story tomorrow. Um, We'll speak to Clem Ford on the show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Podcast One Australia, or wherever you normally get your podcasts on the podcast app on your iPhone, for example. Make sure you subscribe and stay in touch with us on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow.
1: A Podcast One Production.